0: Same passage plus a little bit before it uh, and we spent time unpacking uh, Luke 15 and we are going to continue that this morning. Uh, this is uh, probably one of Jesus's best known parables but also perhaps one of his most misunderstood and the reason for that is is that we hone in on just one part of the parable. And so what I tried to do last week is expand things out so we could actually uh, understand the impact that this parable would have had on its original listeners. Now, I did say last week that I was going to address some broader questions to do with reconciliation and restoration of relationships and so forth. But I realised as I prepared this sermon, I probably bit off more than I could chew. Uh, And so you're going to get that sort of given to you in pastor's letters and maybe a video that I'll make available and so forth. Uh, Otherwise, I could just keep you here and just preach two sermons back to back if you'd like. Uh, Let me know. Anyone? 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 Yeah, okay, there's a few. Yeah, good, okay. Okay, well, that was enough. I was only after one or two, so no, that's fine. Um, Let's dive straight in. But just remember, this is part two. Part one was last week, and you can find it online. Now, this morning, we've got four points. We've got a bit of a recap, a few things to remember. We're going to reframe repentance, reframe sin, and then end with amazing grace. So just quickly... Let's go through. We need to remember that as we look at Luke 15, uh, and probably I was unhelpful when I selected the Bible reading for this morning by only reading one story of the three stories that make up the parable of the lost. Okay? This is not three separate parables. If you look at your Bible, if it's anything like mine, I have a really unhelpful heading called The Parable of the Lost Sheep, and then a bit further down, The Parable of the Lost Coin, and then The Parable of the Lost Son. Can I just say, the, the heading for the chapter, if you're going to have a heading, should be The Parable of the Lost. Okay? And remember, there's not just one lost son. There's actually two Jesus tells us three stories in one parable and the first two set up a pattern so the sheep and the shepherd the lost sheep the woman with the lost coin they set up a pattern and we saw this last week there's a person they've lost something the shepherd's lost the sheep the woman's lost the coin they search they discover they celebrate and so Jesus gives us the pattern Okay, something's lost, there's a search, there's a discovery, there's a celebration. Something's lost, there's a search, there's a discovery, there's a celebration. Okay, you see the pattern? Um, It's kind of like a cricket game. Anyone here like cricket? I love cricket, okay? And back in the day, before they brought in nasty rules that only let bowlers bowl two short pitch bowlers, uh, two short pitch deliveries and over. What you'd often see is the bowler softening up the batsman by bowling bouncer after bouncer after bouncer, forcing the batsman back, forcing the batsman back. And then what does he do with the last ball of the over? He nails it in at the feet of the batsman. Once he's put him on the back foot and the Yorker comes in and just blows him away. Uh, and he's. Uh, some English guy getting bowled by Mitchell Stark. Okay, you might recognise those tattoos. But um, this is what Jesus is doing. He's setting up a pattern. He's, he's basically setting them up for the Yorker. And the Yorker is the back end of the third story. Remember that. Okay, so the first thing, one parable, three stories. The second thing, we need to remember it's a different culture. Because this is a very familiar passage, we kind of think we get it. And it's been picked up in our literature and our art for as long as we can remember. So you get like guys like I think this is Rembrandt. He puts together the prodigal son. I could have picked one of innumerable European artists. They've immortalise this story for us. There are representations of this in our literature, in our films. We think we understand it. But there are lots and lots of parts of this story that we don't get because we are not first century Palestinians. And so we need to accept that there is some things in here that they would understand just as this is the way things are. And we need it explained. So hopefully I can do that for you this morning. It's simple stuff. Do you need, as an Australian, when you leave home and you're heading off to work, or you're heading off to uni or school or something, does someone need to say, just remember, walk on the left-hand side of the footpath? No, because that's the side of the road, that, the footpath that you walk on. When you get in the car, does someone need to say to you, make sure you drive on the left-hand side of the road? No. But if you've ever driven in the Northern Hemisphere, if you've ever driven in the US, I, I imagine if I, I, I've studied in the US, I never wanted to drive a car at all. Why? Because I had this fear that I was going to end up on the wrong side of the road. You know, you'd go around a corner and then you'd just be facing all the traffic. One culture sees things and there's a whole lot of stuff that you just don't need to explain because that's just the way it is. Ask anyone who's immigrated to Australia, because we don't think we do this, but there's all sorts of stuff that they are acutely aware of, uh, even idioms. We'll say, see you later, whether we intend to see you later or not. Um, and so you will find sometimes an immigrant will go, okay, what time Shall we put it in the diary? Um, and we'll just go, no, I was just saying goodbye. Okay, well, why don't you say goodbye? Well, I did, because I said, see you later. You see what I mean? We do this. We know how this works. There are rules to every culture and there are rules to this culture. What's the last thing? We need to remember who the target is. Okay, Jesus tells us, or Luke records for us here in uh, verses 1 and 2. This is the occasion why Jesus told this parable. This is what he's honing in on. Now, the tax collectors, the tax collectors were not people who worked for the ATO. These were people who collaborated with the Roman overlords to extort money out of their own people. Okay? They were despised. In a Jewish court of law, the word of a tax collector was not accepted as a reliable witness. These people were scum. Okay? The tax collectors and the sinners, that's everyone else that the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord didn't like. The sinners gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Not only does he welcome them, he eats with them. Now we still get this in our culture. If I'm inviting you round for a meal, That's that's a gesture of acceptance, isn't it? That's a, I want to get to know you. Okay? In this culture, in Jesus' culture, even more so, to have a meal with someone was to express a deep level of acceptance. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, the, the religious types, they're outraged that Jesus would accept the tax collectors and the sinners. So Jesus tells this story and he follows up the shepherd, the woman, the man with two sons. This is where the crunch comes and it is a massive warning. It's not just a nice story that's meant to make us see God's love for us because it does do that, but it's so much more. Jesus follows it up with the third story. Now, I want to just draw this to your attention this morning because there's some of you, if you're like me, see, I became a Christian when I was 13. I'm now approaching the 5-0 mark. Uh, okay, that's a few years ago that I became a Christian. Most of the obvious sin in my life has been dealt, dealt with. Maybe I'd tell myself that. Ask my family. They can, they can tell you about maybe it's not as cleaned up as I thought it was. Um, But there'll be some of us, and I include myself, who look at this parable and we look at the younger son and we think, that's not really me. To be honest, I'm not one who says to God, I want nothing to do with you. Give me all the stuff. I don't want you. Go away. That's not us. We're good people. We're religious people, perhaps. We keep the rules. We play by the rules as they are set out for us. We need to remember that the Pharisees in the first century were respected. Pharisee has become synonymous for us, for hypocrite, but in the first century, these people were respected. They were looked up to as the shining lights of their community. Many of us would be respected people would look to us as a great example of Christian faith. Well, brother and sister, you need to listen to this story. Remember, Jesus speaks to us all. Let's dive in. We spent most time last week looking at this, but we're going to briefly look at it again. Jesus uses the parable to reframe how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law understand repentance. You know, they think they understand how repentance works. Basically, you regret and then you repay. And we saw it with the younger son, didn't we? This is a guy who comes and to him, he, the Bible says it comes to his senses. I'm going to go back to dad. I'm going to say I'm not worthy to be called your son. Regret make me like one of your hired men, repay. He wants to earn it back. He wants to pay back what he owes. And that's how they understood repentance and maybe how we understand repentance. But last week we saw that repentance is not regret and repay. It's an acceptance that you were lost and now you're found an acceptance of your desperate need for grace remember the great old hymn rock of ages those words that are there nothing in my hand i bring simply to your cross i cling that expression that phrase catches what is at the heart of this repentance that you recognize you cannot bring anything and that without God's grace, without the cross of Christ, you are lost. And so we see that true repentance happens when the son is in the father's arms. His acceptance of his grace. No appeals. No attempts to repay. And it's not just about Remorse. Yes, there is remorse, but what is the emotional response that a life of repentance brings? Not guilt, not bringing yourself down, but joy. Gratitude. That's what characterizes true repentance. There's a party being thrown because the son has come home. He's not sitting in the corner, in the, you know, in the naughty corner. He's in the party celebrating that his father has found him. He was dead and now he's alive and he gets to celebrate with the father. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pass around bread and grape juice to remember that Christ died for our sins. Why is that a celebration? Because Christ died for our sins. Praise God. We were lost and now we are found. We were dead and now we are alive because of his grace. And that's the response. Amazing grace, remember? I told you the story last week that Karen and I occasionally nudge each other. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. Okay? But it is We sing of amazing grace and how beautiful it is and at the same time we recognise that we were wretches needing to be saved. Well, we spent more time on that last week but remember, repentance is not regret and repay. Repentance is an acceptance of being found. Let's move on. Reframing sin. Jesus reframes repentance because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law think they understand it. They want the, fa- the tax collectors and the sinners to earn their way back. But now Jesus, he reframes sin because again, they think they've got it. The Pharisees and the tax collectors and maybe not the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they see sin as breaking rules, as stepping over lines. And maybe that's what we see. it. And when we look at ourselves, we don't see a lot of breaking rules. And so when we think of sinners, we think of them, those younger brother types out there. We're not the sinners, they're the sinners. Jesus says no. We saw this last week. Sin is not primarily breaking rules, but rather it is breaking relationship. It's breaking the father's heart. But you might say, but the Bible camera does have rules, you know, the Ten Commandments and all that. But the rules that are there in scripture are part of an expression of a relationship at the heart of Israel and our relationship with God. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's a relationship. We call God our heavenly father. That's the Christian word for God. We call him father. We don't call him judge. The rules are there, but they just express a relationship. But let's explore this. We see in the story that David read for us, Two types of sin. Firstly, there is the sin of the younger brother. The sin of the law breaker. Now, Jesus is not letting the tax collectors and the sinners off the hook. He's there and he paints their sin in graphic detail. Firstly, there's a denial of relationship. The son comes to the father and he says, dad, I want my share of the inheritance. And in Jewish law, that would have been a one third of the family assets. Okay? One third of the house, one third of the sheep, one third of the goats, one third of all the assets that are there. He's saying, I want that. And then he gets together and he leaves. His request in that culture would have been the same as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. The offence is that extreme. He denies relationship. He denies responsibility because he wants all the benefits but that money was the family money and with the family money and the the privilege came responsibility. You looked after the family. You looked after the community but he sells everything, takes the cash and heads to a foreign country. He wants the stuff but he doesn't want the relationship and he doesn't want the responsibility. He also denies the consequences. He doesn't think about his family. He doesn't think about the shame that his father would endure within the community that his son has done this to him. He doesn't think about the cost of ripping out one third of the family's assets and squandering it, he doesn't care. We need to recognise, and Jesus paints for us here, that sin always has social effects. You cannot ignore the vertical without having horizontal effects. You cannot sin against God without sinning against others. But this man, he denies that consequence for others and also for himself. And it's only at the very bottom does this man actually see the consequence of his sin. He has cut himself off from the source of life itself. He says to himself, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. This man has cut off his family. He has left and he is in the pig pen waiting to starve. He there realises what his sin has meant. This guy, a guy called Kenneth Bailey, lived and ministered in the Middle East For decades. And he wrote a book called The Prodigal or The Cross and the Prodigal. And he wrote about this. He said, A man's security in the village is his family. This is as precious to him as life itself. His family is his social security, his insurance. His age, his old age pension, his assurance of marriage, his physical and emotional well-being. In short, it is everything. When you came into a town, they would ask, whose family do you belong? They used to know people by, uh, if I was a Palestinian in the first century, my name would be Cameron Bar, son of Bruce. My dad. And they'd go, ah, he's a Munro. Okay. Nowhere to put foot him. My brother uh, is a social worker. He went to a... Uh, he worked, uh, works on the south coast of New South Wales and uh, he went to a, an Indigenous uh, community meeting. And uh, there everyone introduced themselves and he said he was the only white fella in the room. And they were all looking at him going, why is this guy there? Okay, and uh, if you know much about uh, Indigenous and white interactions, what happened, particularly, I think, on the East Coast, where Indigenous people were living on uh, farmland claimed by white people, that when they needed a last name, the convenient thing was they would adopt the last name of the farmer, the landowner, Okay, And so uh, when my brother stood up and said, Hi, I'm Andrew Munro... Uh, there was a whole bunch of Aboriginal people called Munro because they'd all lived on the Munro farm at some point. And all of a sudden, they knew where to place my brother. He had a cultural place within that community all of a sudden because they knew his heritage. And it was the same in the first century. They would need to know who you belong to, but this man has cut all ties. Radical consequences for himself only when he was at the bottom did he realize and so we see this sin this denial of relationship this denial of responsibility this denial of consequence and he wakes up he goes home and he is met by the father's grace but there's more i said there was two types of sin here and this is where the sting is in this parable Because there's a sin of the law breaker, but here there is also the sin of the law keeper. There's the sin of the younger brother, but this is the sin of the older brother. And this is why Jesus told the parable. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the teachers of the law, and he's speaking to each one of us. And you see the same pattern. There is a denial of... Of relationship. The younger brothers come home, the party's happening, the older brother comes in from the field. Now he's probably been supervising the labourers rather than labouring himself but we don't really know that. But he sees and he hears this party and he inquires and he's told that his brother has come home, his father has killed the fatted calf and he's celebrating and this man is enraged. He is absolutely furious. And he refuses to go in. And we kind of look at it and go, yeah, kind of get this guy, don't we? You know, look at the, the younger brother, his scumbag's come home and you're throwing a party. We feel the outrage of the older brother, don't we? We miss the fact that in this culture, for the older son not to come in, to the older son not to greet the guests of the father was the gravest offence. And when the father hears of it, what the culture would have expected is that the son would have been punished severely. How dare you shame your father like this? But is that what we see? The father goes out to the son. He shames the The oldest son shames the father. And then he comes to him when the father pleads with him. And he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. Now, okay, maybe a word said in anger. But he reveals in his heart how he sees his relationship with his father. This is a father, son, or is it a slave, master? This man reveals that he is just as distant from his father as the younger son was as he sat in the pig pen and the older brother never left home. He didn't know the father's love. He saw his father as someone who must be obeyed and someone who you slave for. He denied the relationship. He also denies the relationship With his brother. He's there. And he says to the father. When this son of yours. What he doesn't say is when my brother comes home. He denies that he has a relationship with the younger brother. He makes this accusation against him. When he squandered his money with prostitutes. Well. How does he know what he's spent the money on? He's been in the fields. He hasn't even had two words with the brother. He makes an accusation. It might be true. It may not be. He doesn't know. But you can imagine all the years the younger brother's been away. He's been chewing it over. Yeah, that good for nothing. He's off squandering the money with prostitutes. You can imagine him just building up his own case, putting his brother down and building up, I'm not like him building up his own sense of righteousness. I'm the good son. I stayed at home. I'm working for dad. He denies the relationship with his father and with his brother. And you know the tragic irony, and you see it here, by saying this son of yours, he's put himself outside the family. Because the, uh, the, the younger son has been accepted back by the father, hasn't he? The ring, the robe, the sandals. And so when he says, this son of yours, effectively he's saying, you're no father of mine. It's brutal. He denies that relationship. He also denies responsibility. Now, last week I introduced this question to you. In each of the two previous ones, you have something that's lost, a search, a discovery, a celebration. Why is there no search in the third story? Why does no one go and look for the sun? And this is where some of those cultural questions come in. Because to a first century hearer, they know exactly who should have gone to look for the sun. Yeah, you want to guess? His brother. His brother had the responsibility to reconcile the younger rebel to his father, to broker an agreement between the two to hold the family together. But the older brother is mentioned right at the beginning and does not appear to the end. He takes no responsibility to seek his brother at all. And like with the younger one, there's the denial of relationship, the denial of responsibility, but also the denial of consequence. Because the way Jesus has set up this parable, the family is fractured. And whose fault is that? Is it the younger brother? Well, he did break it for a while. But now... The family is fractured. And whose fault is that? It's the older brother. It's his fault. He has fractured this family because he has stepped out of it. He has said, you're not my brother. You're not my father. But he doesn't think he said that. He thinks he's okay. Jesus has told this parable, this three-storied parable. To make this point, to the Pharisees and to the, tax, to, to the teachers of the law, not to the sinners and the tax collectors. They're the ones who are coming and receiving the Father's grace through the teaching and the acceptance of the Son. But it's the religious types. It's the religious types that Jesus is saying, you are the ones on the outside. You are the ones who have not taken your responsibility. You are the ones who do not know the Father. And it's a warning. It's a warning for them, and it's a warning for us. Because as I said, after you've been a while as a Christian, you don't have such a sense of yourself as the younger brother. You don't see yourself as the one desperately in need of grace our natural tendency is to move to become more like the older brother we look so good on the outside we keep the rules we don't, you're at church how wonderful to have you here you're not out partying with prostitutes you're moral, good upright people Jesus' warning is for us, for all of us. How would we know? Let me give you three things before I wrap up. What is your attitude towards younger brothers? When you think of people who aren't here this morning, when you think of sinners, sinners, Do you think of them as sinners? Is there that sense of us and them out there? Do you want them to come? Do you kind of enjoy looking down on them and thinking, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even that tax collector over there. Do you welcome them with condescension? Ah, it's about time you came in. It's about time you got wise. Oh yes. Do you look to them to somehow regret and repay? Do you have a concern that the gospel go to the nations? Or you are you quite comfortable that this is your happy little place? You wouldn't want sinners here, would you? (laughs) Sorry, Jesus says, you've got a whole room of them. Uh, Look around, look around. But what is your attitude towards younger brothers? The Pharisees and the tax collectors, they said, I keep on saying that, don't I? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were saying, these people have no business here. And Jesus is saying they have every business here. They have the same business here as you have. What's our attitude to the younger brothers? What do we look to? The older brother looks to his own performance. I've kept the rules. I've slaved for you. He looks to his own performance for his relationship with the father. Do we look to our performance for our standing before God? Or do we look to his grace? Are we bitter when things don't work out the way that we want them to? Do we blame God? You've never even given me a goat. How do we react to setbacks? Do we look at God... As the older brother did, as somehow ripping you off what you deserve. What is our standing before God? And this one I think is particularly telling. Do we lack enjoyment of our relationship with God? Do we see obedience as a burden? All these years I've slaved for you. I've never broken one of your commands. Do we look at Scripture and we see the path that Christ calls us to follow and we say, oh, that looks terrible. I suppose I should. Or do we delight to follow our Savior? Not because we must, but because we can. Do we look at God as the great law keeper and I better do what he tells me or he's going to smack me? Or if I keep the rules, he'll reward me. Or do we rejoice in his grace? The father says to the son, everything I have is yours. Ephesians 1 tells us that in Christ he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Is our walk with God a burden or a joy? Do we look at grace as a bit ho-hum? Brothers, sisters, be warned. Hear what Jesus is saying. But remember, there is always grace. Because in this story, the father never stops being the father. The son might disown the father, but the father never disowns the son. The father never washes his hands and says, I'm well rid of him. The father is always the father. He is waiting for the son to come home and when he sees that son, he meets him with grace and mercy and love and he bears the cost to bring him back home. And that's what he's saying this morning, that through the cross of Christ, the father bore the cost to bring the younger brothers and the elder brothers home. He meets us with his grace. He amazes us with his grace. He calls us. Come home. So this morning, maybe you're a younger brother and you know, you know you need to come home. Matt, I would love to talk to you, others around you. Come home. That is God's offer. Maybe you're an older brother. Or you recognize that there's an element of older brotherness that is sneaking in. Brother and sister, see God's grace. Come home. Jesus leaves the story hanging. At the end, the older brother is still outside. Are we partying with the Father? Or are we outside? Going to leave a moment now where we're going to spend some time in quiet reflection. They're big questions I've asked this morning. And in just a moment, Matt's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a prayer of confession uh, where we can ask together for God's forgiveness, knowing that his grace is ours in Christ. But just spend a moment now pondering what it is that God has done for us in Christ, the warning that Jesus gives us, but the amazing grace that is offered.